As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Those who know me will know that I've been fortunate to sit at the side of some people who are like experts in their fields, in the fields of race topics, Islamic topics, uh, jurisprudence, etc. And since we're still in the pandemic, I've come across another said individual who is a G in her field. And I've learned so much and been fortunate to be in touch with our guest today, Deej Wagwan. Hi, thank you for having me. This is so <laughs> No, thank you. No, thank you for joining me on the Malcolm Effect. Let's go straight into it. I already did an episode, actually, where we broke down the race report. So what yeah. I want to do, rather than speaking about the race report, let's speak about a bit about the race report, but what goes on next. So first question, before we start anything, how do I be like you? What? How do you be like me? <laughs> I don't know. And I actually really love that you called me an expert because I will not dub myself an expert on anything. I, I think of myself more of like a jack of all trades, but like an expert at none. <laughs> um, and that's mostly because like I'm a critical scholar, right? So I just find ways to ask the right types of questions and the right types of mm -hmm. questions that provoke particular types of thoughts. So my mind is constantly asking questions about any sort of thing that I'm presented with and asking those right types of questions then forces me to think in the right kinds of ways about these things. And obviously like I'm a Marxist, so that and that history, that analysis, the tools that are offered by Marx and other thinkers that have come after Marx are essential to just how I engage with the world, how I analyse various things. I'm one of those people who's really annoying, right? So like, you see how you see me talk and I'm always like asking these critical questions and I'm like, yeah. always like, oh, okay, what is the material analysis here? How can we use dialectics here? That's literally me in real life. It's actually no joke. Oh, wow. No <laughs> yeah, it's why I have no friends because... I'm the type of person you take me to the cinema and I'm like, oh, do you understand that the entire complex of like Hollywood is inherently capitalist and evil and everything that they're presenting us with is indoctrination? And people are like, can you chill? <laughs> and I'm like, I actually cannot. I cannot turn this off. It's a problem. It's a problem. But it's also come in really handy because it means that, you know, doing my PhD and looking at race, being in the academy and asking these really kind of thought provoking questions about race has sort of led me to where I am and led me to what I think is, you know, this conversation is going to be really important, right? To think critically about race, think beyond sort of how we've come to understand race and push beyond the sorts of limits of how race is offered to us, both in the sort of visual and even in the sort of like structural too, right? And that's, that's something I'm really, really interested in, right? How we can understand and think about race on different registers if we understand the world as being organised in the material, organised through these sort of psychoanalytic, subconscious, unconscious sort of entities, and then organised mm. through the things like the symbolic, right? So the symbolic being ideologically, the symbolic being through TV, through representations, through literature, et cetera, et cetera. We can't have a good grasp on what race is unless we interrogate race on these three registers, on these different okay. levels of human experience. Okay, so we will hopefully by the course of through the course of this episode interrogate it on those levels. But first and foremost, your initial reaction to the race report. So it was it was very interesting because first it was like, well, duh, you know, what what were we expecting? 
yeah. from a report <laughs> commissioned by what is basically like a proto-fascist government on race mm-hmm. when they continue to not only deny race but actually systematically attack people like me who are interested in scholarships on race yes. and create a moral panic around the topics that we're interested in asking or the problems in society that we're interested in sort of resolving or at the very least evidencing. So unsurprised. And then I got this overwhelming sense of grief. And I think okay. everyone was going through that, yeah. right? Like it just hit me and I was just like, how the hell did we come to this and where the hell are we going? Mm-hmm. Politics in the context of the UK has continuously just become so just upsetting, right? So upsetting mm-hmm. because when we're seeing our government, you know, wage these wars on the people, we're seeing nothing happen. We're seeing their, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> their rates go up. We're seeing people actually, you know, still want to support the Tories. And I'm like, what? what yes. where are we? You know, where are we right now and what is going on and how are, how are we so just engaged with what has happened last year where there was this real sort of sense of revolution in the air to then continuously supporting the people who literally want mm. to squash that revolution, right? Who at every given attempt have tried to silence black and brown people who have waged wars on the working class. And why are we why are we not seeing this? Why are more people buying into their logics? Like that's that was the thing that really hurt. So then answer your own question. How have we got to this point? I mean, we've got to this point through, I think, a, a series of complex, systematic, institutional and structural shifts that have happened. Um, and mm-hmm. perhaps that started to happen in the Thatcher era, mm-hmm. where we saw the like creation and construction of a neoliberal free market politics embed every single part of our lives, right? Where it was no longer about the society, it was no longer about community, it was about the individual, Um, And that's infected our culture too, right? So whereas we used to think of culture as something that was inherently collaborative, we've started Mm -hmm. to think about culture as these things that are commodities, things that we own as individuals and things that we have to then perform or sell as individuals. And that's really Mm -hmm. detached us from our understandings and our sympathy and our empathy with a sort of global population of people, but also like our solidarities as working class people as a whole. And all of that was intentional, right? Like all of those Mm -hmm. things were intentional. The sort of proliferation of individualist politics is intentional it's intentional within the sort of logics of capitalism and it's got us to where we are now with race where we are so or rather we lack the literacy that helps us Mm. understand the sort of ways in which we experience race and the ways in which the state manages race Mm. and because of this lack of literacy and because of this focus on the individual we've bought into that bootstraps culture right that that or that bootstraps ideology that says well if you fail it's a personal failure Mm. because there's look at look at the black people that are doing it well right look at the the few black people that have made it to the (laughs) to the bourgeois class if you are not following in their footsteps then it's your individual failure a complete disregard of the actual complex history and the technologies that have existed and continue to exist that actually cause us to experience racism or racialization through the logics of class and keeps us subjugated now absolutely i think it's very telling when they tout pretty patel and rishi sunak as signs of racial progress or they and they reduce racism and technology is solely down to the interpersonal and I think mm-hmm. you're very I think it's, it's been a trajectory as you said since the Thatcher era so the question is then okay if we've seen it wrong and let's be honest you know I think we can say this because we're both black black people have bought into this logic as well absolutely they have like they hear it, the black the myth of the black capitalist and I think mm-hmm. I don't even want to go too much into that but then I'll ask you if we're thinking about if we're thinking about it wrong the question then is how should we be thinking about race and racism well, I think for me, we cannot detach race as we know it 
from the history of race, right? So I'm thinking here about the ways in which race came to be through the logics of capitalism as a capitalist technology, right? As a capitalist mm-hmm. technology to not only make sense of labor, but to separate labor. And in the case of slavery, to actually create a process of dehumanization that justified mm-hmm. the entirety of like, you know, of, of labor being extracted mm-hmm. for free and the sort of creation of a politics of subordination and, you know, oppression of black people. We cannot ever forget that history. We can't forget that history because although we tend to think about it as like such a long time ago, I have to continue to remind people slavery and colonialism are in living memory. Like they're in living memory, right? We have like my dad was born in 1952. So that was and Ghana got independence from its colonial masters, Britain in 1957. That's not that long ago. Now, having said that, my my dad, yeah, my dad, sorry to cut you off. My dad was born in 1939. I'm the youngest of 10. And he went to colonial school. And Gambia gained gained independence in 65. And literally, he tells me, he told me his own mother used to curtsy when they see white people in the street. Oh, yeah. My grandmother. (laughs) So it's actually living memory. It's living memory. And, And the way people like to talk about you know, African countries and like to talk about even the context of like, you know, European racism and American racism. I'm like, when did you think this happened? This this wasn't that long ago. The 60s is not mm-hmm. that long ago. Let's be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, the 60s is not that long ago. So we have to continuously remind people that these, you know, the logics of sort of capitalism, the technologies of capitalism that created this sort of contentious racialization are still very much ever present. And actually, there's never ever been a true systematic shift, right? There's never been an attempt to dismantle mm. the system of capitalism that creates these sorts of racializations. That's never happened. So if the technology is still there and the people are still being racialized within the logics of that technology, how can we expect to see substantial change in the sort of relations of of, of black people, especially in the in the metropole? Like we we won't. Mm. So let me press you a bit more on then. So when you look at the UK, what do you identify as how do you see racism play out? So a lot of people, and this is the thing I have a big gripe with, right? Be like, oh, you know, racism in the UK is covert. (laughs) <laughs> you know it's like a it's psychological okay yeah that's true it's not over what what does that mean right like when you mm-hmm. have things like the awarding gap in university where you know black and asian students do 20 percent less well than white students how is that covert right when mm-hmm. we know that when we look at the color of money there was a great report done by the one me trust we see that it is essentially people of color black and brown people who are literally the most impoverished, right? Who have the least sort of familial wealth, who don't even have access to things like housing, who mm-hmm. don't have access to the types of support that the government claims to have offered to the you know previous sort of white working class sort of communities that were here. Mm-hmm. All of these things exist, yet we're saying covert, because what we understand overt racism as someone calling you something in the street. Actually, that's the interpersonal. The structural is the far more dangerous, far more insidious, far more violent structuring logics of racism. But we've gotten so used to thinking about it as, well, America has these incidents of these sort of, like, you know, overt incidents of interactional racism, the things that we can capture on a camera. So that is where racism is the most concentrated. And we completely ignore not only Britain's colonial 
know your history, but Britain's yeah. current legacy, right? Current mm-hmm. legacy of extraction from the continent of Africa, current legacy, current legacy of subjugation of black and brown people in the UK. We forget things like Windrush. We forget things like the border regime. We forget mm. things like policing where, you know, black men are 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched than their white counterparts. All of these things were like, oh, it's just covert. I, I, I don't understand that. <laughs> so I why don't do you understand. think? That, so why do you think then, when we as black people speak about race, we only focus on like the interpersonal. We only focus on it's protect black women, but that just means don't just be nice to black women, for example, and things like. I mean, I know when you've been in some rooms and clubhouse and we had these discussions, mm-hmm. but we I, we as black people as well have inherited that kind of way of thinking, isn't it? It's literally that we only see racism as interpersonal and almost. And I've seen you've been critiqued. I've also been critiqued when I when we try and say no, okay, those things are bad that we have to you know tell from our personal trauma but we cannot make our trauma our politics politics, yeah (laughs) and we know and we have to you know move away from that we have to move away from and when we start talking about the structural oh you lot don't care or you lot so Mm -hmm. so you at the beginning of the episode you said that you are a black marxist the question is and i and i I, I can I'm going out on the limb here, but I'm sure you agree. I know you love black people. I know you want to see black of people. Of course, liberated. I want to so see black best, people win. <laughs> of course, and I, I remember you said I think it was you know you want to see everyone wealthy. You know, I want to see everyone wealthy. So my question to you then is, why do you think adopting a Marxist lens helps the best in the fight for racism? Okay. against racism so as i mentioned earlier right we need to understand racism or the structures of racial capitalism as existing on these three different registers so firstly mm-hmm. we can have like the material so the material is the real life right the material mm-hmm. is the real the material is how we see the economic system sort of playing out the material is how we see the systems of policing um, and incarceration play out the material mm-hmm. is how we see the judicial framework play out right then we have mm-hmm. the symbolic the symbolic is the ideological as we tend to frame it, not ideological in the sort of ways in which Marx frames it. So the ideological being the literary read, the education systems, right? The media we see, right? And then we have the the unconscious. So the okay. unconscious being the things that happen in our brain, right? The things that we think about, how we think about race, how we think about racial capitalism. Very mm-hmm. often, though, I think we wage these wars of attempting to liberate ourselves through what is the symbolic and we even don't do the sort of macro symbolic in terms of the ideological we then focus on these representational politics models yep right so it's never about BAME let's use BAME for example right? yes. the more panic around BAME BAME mm-hmm. as this symbol of this homogenization of black and brown people BAME as this symbol that wants to sort of co-opt black movement we use we think about BAME like this right and BAME has become the war that we waged during what was a very revolutionary time and what did the government say we're going to stop using BAME guess why because BAME's symbolic they can stop using BAME and just replace it with a new terminology because when we wage war simply on symbols simply on representation the state will happily do that and the state did that before when people have issues with politically black gave them new language did they actually increase the support that were going to these marginal communities? Nah. Wow. Of course they didn't. And the same thing is happening right now, right? So we won the war of the symbol. We won the war against fame. But guess what we got in return? Racism doesn't exist anymore. Yep. <laughs> wow. offer a violent state, something simple that they can win you over with, mm-hmm. they're not going to do the material. 
Mm. And the material should always be what grounds us. And that's what makes me a black Marxist, right? Because the material is what follows me. Because the material is the scientific. The material is the thing that can be evidenced. The material is the thing that is the most important, the most pertinent, right? The material mm. is people surviving. I don't give a fuck what you call us. Yeah. As long as we can eat, as long as we have shelter, as long as you stop killing us, as long as you stop imprisoning us, those are the important things. Those are the wars I want to wage. That's where I want to put my energy, not on symbols. Symbols mean nothing. But because as humans, and this is sort of sort of psychoanalytic point, we often just don't understand the world, right? The mm-hmm. only ways in which we sometimes engage with the world is through the symbolic. The symbolic mm. is the space where the material and the unconscious seem to come together, but they don't. Because the material is the material and the material should be always what we're focused on because the material stops the sort of tools of mystification that can be waged through these sort of symbols and representative politics. The material doesn't lie to us because the material is evidence. So are you saying then, so how, I fully hear you and I'm in agreement with you, but are you saying that there's a time and place for the trauma, but that's like in individual healing circles, but that's, that's with your therapist. You know what? Absolutely, right? And it's not even not even individual. Like we we need to do things like community care. And there are spaces mm-hmm. where that can be facilitated, that can be healing, that can be transformative. Those things are inherently important. And actually I think about the trauma as less of a symbolic, more of the unconscious, right? So more of the mm. sort of thing that exists within our head, the traumas that we keep with us that make it so hard to mm-hmm. not see the material, right? Because we experience those traumas through symbols. We experience those traumas through, you know, the language someone may use to call us. We experience those traumas through not having enough representation on TV. But those things are mystifications because the actual yes. problem is always like the systems of poverty that we grew up in, right? Mm-hmm. Because poverty, as we know, creates these sort of violences. They creates these sorts of traumas. Yes. So the question then is to you then. So being the lens that you use, how you come to understand the race, do you, and so then those who let's say who are from another class, let's say the middle class, the, the, the black Tories, the people mm. who are, who've made it better in your analysis and in your liberation, are we not including those people? Listen, so if we go back to Marx, we understand <laughs> that the systems of like capitalism as they exist, right? They, they force us all into these logics, right? They force us all and they make us all culpable for the ways in which this violent system of, of capitalism exists, right? Us as black mm-hmm. people who exist within the metropole, can't ever act as though, although we're unconscious to the ways in which we're engaged in systems of violence, we're also, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're tarnished by it, right? Just by mm-hmm. existing in the UK and paying your taxes, your many kid is getting bombed. Yeah. But that's the T, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a, so I'm a teacher, so I've got a teacher's pension. Teacher's yeah. pensions are often used and the stocks that, or the teacher's pensions are often, what do you call that word? Invested into like, you know, bombs and drones and all that stuff. Wow. So the systems of capitalism in the sort of imperial core in the metropole, so that's the UK, most of Europe, well, the entirety of Europe, essentially, and America and New Zealand, et cetera, et cetera, they're all violent states. (laughs) And anyone who exists as a citizen within those states, not intentionally, but somewhat contributes to the sort of subjugation of the global South, right? Every time I buy, Mm -hmm. every time anyone buys a top from Boohoo, there's a Bengali woman who 
can't feed her children. Mm-hmm. There's a Bengali woman who's living or working under slave conditions, right? So systems of capitalism pretty much implicate us all. So when yes. I say things like it's not a moral critique, right? We're not trying to moralize these things. We're saying that because capitalism is an inherently exploitative structure, all mm-hmm. of us contribute to that exploitation. So I'm never sort of mad at the sort of black bourgeois for the ways in which they engage in these exploitative politics. It's actually just the logics of capitalism that force them into that, right? Capitalism mm-hmm. offers us an image of freedom but is inherently contradictory to that freedom so the work of revolution liberates us all right mm. so the black bourgeois will be liberated too you know the you know all of us will be free we will actually mm. know the true essence of freedom right because we won't be living on this this system of exploitation the system of violence that implicates us whether we know it or not but i want you to explain the logic of someone like the black bourgeoisie the middle class in the uk because um, you, you would say they're just voting i mean they're just aligned with their material interests isn't it Absolutely, right? And I think this is also the problem of how we've come to understand race. There was a point in Mm -hmm. time where race could be very quickly and easily mapped onto class, right? If you are Mm -hmm. Black, you were most likely working class because there wasn't a system through which, you know, Black people had the meat or owned the means of production or, you know, Mm -hmm. there are no Black empirical nations, right? So Blackness very quickly and very easily mapped onto working classness. Mm -hmm. That's become less sort of legible now. It's become less legible because they're throughout history have been black people who have sought or desired the power of the bourgeois class and as such have you know voted or, or engaged against the interests of the collective of black people who are still sort of mm. working class and subjugated those people have always existed people like Du Bois called them out right people like Fanon yes. calls them out at any given stage there are always these reformists conformists you know neoliberal black people capitalistic black people who see what the master has and desires the master's tools you know yeah. part of the logics of like not only racial subjugation through enslavement but also colonialism very much sort of entrenches particular systems of power and domination that often mm-hmm. force us to buy into them. And so when we see things like the Preeti Patels, when we see things like the is it Kwasi Kwarteng and all these other sort of... Kwasia. <laughs> when we see these things, we just need to understand that this is just a system of history, right? There's always mm-hmm. been people who buy into those logics. There's always been people who you know, become exploiters. And that actually is why we need the types of racial literacy that understands race through class, that Mm. understands that, you know, by virtue of race doesn't automatically indicate solidarity. Solidarity is an action. So when we create or when we use language of like racialism that flattens the black experience, especially at a time where we have an increasing and growing population of black bourgeois people, what we do is that we allow the sort of traumas of working class black people to be leveraged by bourgeois class black people so that they can make more material gains for themselves. Mm, how, can you give an example of how that, how that is the case? So this is a really good example that I got from our friend Annie, actually. So for example, during Black Lives Matter last year, all these companies were coming out, putting out Black Lives Matter solidarity statements, right? I think, you know, Fashion Nova or something actually held a competition for Black content creators. Okay. Right? But who is Fashion Nova subjugating? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Who is this sort of money that is now being offered through these performative actions of revolutionary praxis actually subjugating? It's subjugating, you know, women in the global south. Yep. But now Fashion Nova's like, oh, look how great Fashion Nova is. They support Black people. No, they don't. 
I don't want to be implicated in Fashion Nova's nonsense. Fashion Nova is not revolutionary because we understand revolutionary action. We understand the black radical tradition. We understand black radicalism, the, the, the radicalism of the Panthers to be inherently internationalist, to be about solidarity, not about the material gains any one black person can make, about the, con- the, um, the liberation of the entire fucking planet. That's what we're looking yes. for. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. the small gains. Right. And that's what we have to always be critical of when we flatten blackness and when we don't understand blackness through these kind of logics of class, we will ultimately essentialize and create systems through which people or black people who are willing to sell out their communities will win. So I ask this question quite a lot to uh, people. People in the in, in the West would say, "Well, you know, okay, it's not perfect, but we're getting better. You know, I can get a job now. I can get a degree. I can buy a house. And material condition, I just, I just need to work harder. And, and you know, how how would you respond to that? Listen, social mobility is a myth. It's one of the longest myths running. <laughs> like- <laughs> You know, you, the individual, doesn't is not representative of the actual reality of the situation. And that's why we always need to focus on the material, right? Because what does the material do for us? What does the, you know, running need report tell us? It tells us that Black people still aren't making these gains, right? Mm. It tells us that Black people still aren't having access to the sorts of structures of safety that other races have, right? And I don't say, I, and I say other races, I mean the white people in the country have, right? We look at the material and it tells us exactly what it means to be impoverished. And the realities of that, you know subjugation the realities of those material deprivations is that we're not making gains like we're just not yes right and that is the institutional racism like we're not making those gains 100 percent. even though we have like but how okay we're not making those gains on the, on the communal level or collective but you know the people again it's very how do you just, just put me a point of advice for people who are listening how do you convince those black people who are brought into the logics of capitalism to say like you're not doing what you think you're doing or you're not being able you're not going to be able to become a billionaire like you think you are well Gosh, that's the big question, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's a part of me who's like, leave them. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? Like, leave them. Because again, I think we spend so much of our time trying to convince people who have made it very clear to us where their class interests lie to sort of engage them in the movement, wherein there are thousands of people who are impoverished, who are living those contradictions of capitalism that we are much better spending our time focused on. Mm, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not in the stage of my life where I feel the need to sort of convince a black bourgeois class person who buys into these logics and is actually a happy participant in capitalism to change their minds mm-hmm. because they actually are class aware they just understand that their class demands are very different to our class however there wow. are thousands of people many of whom are experiencing the violence of capitalist precarity experiencing the violence of capitalist sort of just like deprivation and understand more you know in real terms in in experiential terms these inherent contradictions to capitalism and what we need to do is find ways to offer them that language through these works of political education, through the works of sort of radical mutual aid, not just cash upping people, but actually talking to people, making sure their material needs are met, right? Doing the work mm-hmm. of the Panthers, feeding kids, feeding families, providing education mm-hmm. to families and support to families, and making them understand that, you know, there is a future, there is an imagination, there is context through which we can live, whereby we're all our needs are met right Mm. whereby you're not starving whereby you're not trying to hustle whereby you're not having to fill out these forms to get benefits that make you feel like shit there is a there is a world that we can create that says you deserve these things you deserve to survive you deserve to thrive because you're human and that's that's and and that's enough spit in spit in deej i can listen to deej all day (laughs) i've been i've been in so many rooms where people have said that 
My question to you, apart the part of the report where it pits Caribbeans versus Africans, speak to that. It's nonsense. <laughs> nonsense right <laughs> um, and it's such nonsense because again like when we look at different sort of statuses or different institutions or different structures or different systems we see that different people come up on top in different places right so there is yeah. no evidence that i can find that consistently positions black africans as better than black caribbeans mm-hmm. any times where there isn't a difference it's like a matter of like one percent okay it's yeah. literally a matter of degree but mm-hmm. inherently what the truth of the matter is that the the disparity between black caribbean and black african or the disparity between black collectively and asian is far smaller than the disparity between all of us and white people yes like that's the tea and also again we have to understand it as a systematic and intentional need to pit communities against each other this happened in the past right this happened in the sort of political black movements that would destabilize through the sort of government and through the states pitting communities against each other by only offering funding with specific ethnic groups tied to it whereas Mm. before funding would just go on whoever needed it but how about that people will say the myth of the white working class I mean, it's myth. <laughs> Do you know what's actually really interesting? Yeah. The myth of the white working class isn't something that is new, right? Yes. So the actual construction and, and at, the, at the sort of apex construction of what was like, you know, capitalism, there was an intentional sort of design, by design technology by the bourgeois class to kill the sort of anger and frustration of white of, of white working class people, right? This is before mm-hmm. we even had a sort of influx of migration as we know it now. And that was that was how we understand nationhood. So nationhood was constructed to give sort of white working class people this notion of whiteness, this notion mm. of white working classness that was exceptional, this notion of Englishness that was exceptional and forced them to buy into nationhood, buy into their logics and the identities of sort of Britishness and Englishness. That mm. is by design, right? So the ways in which we're seeing the Tories mobilise this language of white working classness is a thing that has always been there. It's always been there, mm-hmm. right? Nationalism and the growth of nationalism and the growth of the border, border regime are inherently sort of part of the operating mechanisms of capitalism. Mm. So how we need to understand the white working classness actually and even at the times through which sort of this sort of nationalist politic was created was the inception of how we understand sort of identity politics. So mm-hmm. not identity politics as articulated by Combahee River Collective, which is very different and very specific, but actually the identity politics that we know now, those neoliberal identity politics that we see being wielded, right? That is exactly yes. what is happening with the ways in which we're saying white working class. There is nothing that is, there's nothing about whiteness in its sort of centrality yes. that presupposes particular types of oppressions. Mm-hmm. But, but there is class. Say, yes, so then, okay, yes, absolutely agreement with you. They will say things like, oh, but the white working class are left behind. Uh, or they say that, you look, West African immigrants do better than white working class people. How would you, what would you respond to that? There are two ways we can understand that as inherently racist anyway, right? So racist within the sort of ideological and symbolic yes. <laughs> of the nation in that any, any time that a colonial subject, and let's be clear, those sort of legacies and sort of attachments and affects of colonialism are very much still in the sort of nationalistic fabric of Britain as an empire. So the mm-hmm. idea that a sort of colonial subject is doing better than a, a native Brit, as they might call themselves, who've been offered all these sort of, you know, historical 
hierarchical sort of structures of power and access and support, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, I think there's a little bit of like nationalistic embarrassment. Oh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. It's like, you don't let Negroes do better than you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah. a little bit of that but then more so it's also just not true right like I work in education I know that at almost every given stage there is so much attention paid to white working class peoples especially first generation white working class students entering university etc cetera, etc cetera. and actually they still do better than us academically right yeah yeah they still do better academically when it comes to university so I don't understand the need to focus on secondary school and also even the sorts of even if it wasn't by a matter of degree, and let's be clear, these percentage differences between white working class people and other sort of ethnicities or of POC is like one or two percent. <laughs> mm. oh, um, wow. And actually, because of the ways in which they collect data and because they often d- don't disaggregate the data, it's also a falsity, right? Bang- um, Bangladeshi people are often always at the bottom of the sorts of piles of access or, you know, at yes. the bottom of the sort of um, league tables or bottom of the sort of um, attainment levels, et cetera, et cetera. Somali people too, right? Um, so it's a mm-hmm. falsity on that aspect. And I think, you know, we can very much disprove them. But also, even if it was true, we know that there is enough support for white working class people currently, even in the ways in which this has become a moral panic. And also, how does this then translate into the material? Yeah. So what happens when they leave education? They still get better jobs. Mm, you true. know, exactly. they still come, they, they, family wealth or the sort of family yep, income is still income. better. Yep. Exactly. It's still better than sort of most black and Asian families. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, so finally... Yeah, my final tip, which has been amazing. I, I hope if people who are listening are enjoying this conversation. This is what you call a masterclass, okay? Oh, and you're, and you're getting this for free, you know? I'm telling you, it's not a joke. Final two questions. In your bio on Clubhouse, which I know I notice changes almost every day, but you've I think something to something along the lines of a black feminist, not that neoliberal stuff that you lot. Are not you now. doing this to so, me. No, so I have to ask what what's the neoliberal feminism and why are you not that? So we have to be really, really, really careful, I think, in this current age, because we are all often subject to the types of neoliberal socializations that we've Mm -hmm. been born into or that we've existed into right if we understand the project of neoliberalism being its most sort of like operationalized during the thatcher slash reagan era we understand Mm -hmm. that many of us of our age have been born in the neoliberal paradigm so the only ways through which we actually even understand ourselves is through these logics of neoliberal individualism And what I've seen, and Joy James, Dr. Joy James has these really great analysis and does talks on this, is that Black feminism and Black feminism, which has a tradition that is inherently radical, right, that is inherently sort of Marxist, has Mm -hmm. also been transformed. Mm -hmm. I had this realising moment when I was like, and I was speaking to Annie about this, and I was like, so I'm a Black feminist. I've always called myself a Black feminist, but mm-hmm. I've always also been like a Marxist because to me, yes. that's what Black feminism is, right? If we understand Black feminism as a discipline, as an analysis, as a revolutionary praxis, it's always been Marxist. It's always been about sort of the mobilizations of dialectic materialism mm-hmm. that engages in the radical work of understanding how gender is structured under capitalism, how race is structured under capitalism, how mm. by virtue of womanhood and blackness, we experience those sort of mobilizations of capitalist technologies and capitalist logics through these mediums of race and gender and queerness too. Mm-hmm. And then Annie was like, yeah, but you have to understand a lot of these people who call themselves black feminists are just like liberal feminists who just happen to be black. Mm. 
Mm. And then it clicked for me, right? Then all of a sudden, the slum flower shit clicked for me. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, people like Shardeen, who've actually been calling out this stuff for a while, clicked for me. Because I, I wasn't mm-hmm. online for a long time, so I didn't see just how entrenched this neoliberal black feminism had become. But yes. it's the type of feminism that tells you to cash up a black woman, right? Yes. <laughs> because she spoke for some time. Instead of telling you to pick up a book and engage in the community, engage in activism. Mm. that tells you that reparations is a system of individual exchange and not a system of transformative abolition that completely deconstructs the systems of capitalism and redistributes wealth on a mass scale to the most subjugated because that's my black feminism Mm. cash up me is not black feminism right like that's that doesn't help us Mm. that's a neoliberal mobilization of individualist politics interactional politics that's not going to free us And that's when I had to very much distinguish between what to me is this radical black feminism of freaking Claudia Jones, of Bell Hooks, of Angela Davis, of Joy James, et cetera, et cetera. And how, and even Angela Davis, you've got to put an hysterics on that, right? (laughs) Um, And how that's substantially different to the black feminism that we see people like Beyonce engage in. Yeah, and I was going to just comment on that. I remember you mentioned it on the rooms again. When you look at the landscape of, of the discussion of race in the UK, we see, um, I don't want to, I mean, you can, you can feel free to name people, but you see like, you know, the, the race people and there's all specific types of people and they're not speaking like this, but they've adopted the language of, let's say, critical race theories and they just, mm. you know, use it to, I'm going to be quite frank, to make money. Absolutely. So, what, so the DEI grift. Yes. <laughs> the device and inclusion people. What do you think of those people? Again, those people who, they're people who have just found a way to commodify you know, radical thought and not actually commodify it actually. And I wouldn't even call it radical thought anymore because they've actually just used radical terminology, but completely just decontextualize it, remove it from its roots, remove it from its sort of praxis of um, of revolution and internationalism and have made it a sort of market exchange, right? Or have made it a sort of corporate exchange rather. Mm. Because let's be clear, it costs a corporation nothing if you call them out on their racism and that they pay even like 20 grand to have someone do exactly. training. It costs them a lot less, actually, than for them to stop, for example, exploiting the global south. So if you're okay with the exploitation of the global south, which is how we need to actually understand the sort of systems and technologies of of racism and imperialism, and just make it about, we just want more representation, we want more seats at this table of violence, it's very easy. To, 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 to let that happen right and it's that point I made earlier about when we wage war simply on these sort of symbolic and representational fronts what we do and what we give up in order to get those seats is actually way more substantial yes yes and finally finally for those who want to adopt a revolutionary politic watch a couple books or things would you what's the intro and please give it at a beginner's oh, level gosh I've been asked this so much and I don't know what I would say in intro text is but I will say one of the first texts I read that really sort yeah. of shifted my understanding and I read it when I was around 1920 was how Europe underdeveloped Africa right um, I called myself a Marxist before I before I read that because I actually read obviously Communist Manifesto but Capital is far more an expansive and analytical text but communist manifesto is a great entry level right and actually Marx created communist manifesto for the working class people so that they can understand some of the contradictions of capitalism and so that they can actually be offered not only an alternative but an imagine the ability to imagine difference in their material Mm. um, circumstances so communist manifesto I guess you know you can always start on that but I would definitely say how Europe underdeveloped Africa seminal text for me 
seminal text okay. for me because not only does it sort of historicize capitalism as it sort of emerged in the context of you know Europe as articulated by Marx and gives kind of really direct examples of some of the things that Marx was speaking to but also offers us an analysis of slavery and analysis of colonialism and I think a lot of that is actually missing especially within the western canon of Marxist politics so I would I would definitely definitely recommend how Europe underdeveloped Africa there are so many other texts that I could also recommend but um, intro 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 so also, yeah, no. uh, for those who are wondering how Europe underdeveloped Africa that's Walter Rodney and also, actually, I actually recommend a side point. It's actually an awesome video of Vijay Prashad and Robin D.G. Kelly speaking about Walter Rodney's unfinished text, The Russian Revolution. Actually, a really good video online for amazing. those who are listening. Yeah. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. People, I'm going to leave DJ's socials in the description of this episode. You're listening to The Malcolm Effect with Mamadou. Please like, comment, and subscribe, whether that's on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or on YouTube. Until next time, take care.